We're going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning at verse 11. So that's 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. And was raised. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we've known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. Good morning. It's great to be with you again. For those that are new in the building, my name is Mike, a new lead pastor here at Tungabi, and it's, it's uh, been a pre- pleasure uh, and, and a challenge to, uh, to have opened up God's Word through 2 Corinthians with you, and I've been enjoying chatting with people as, as how this Word has impacted their lives, and uh, my hope is that as we hit this epic conclusion to this sort of part of our series, um, that it, God would continue to do a great work in us this morning. Now, let me begin by just saying the Word reconciliation. What, what comes to mind when I say that word, 
reconciliation. Perhaps, like me, this is what came to mind. Uh, thinking about the reconciliation with Indigenous Australians uh, and our desire to see uh, one nation of, of one people. Now, it's become an important concept in the identity of our nation ever since, um, well, actually, it, it goes back a fair way, but you, you, can, you can note sort of particular moments where, uh, say, uh, Kevin Rudd said sorry in 2008, or before that, multiple treaties or, or royal commissions, all pursuing uh, a reconciled nation and making uh, and sort of uh, counting the cost of what had been done in the past and heading towards the restoration of broken relationships. But even as you say, read the website of Reconciliation Australia, they will acknowledge that despite these good things, we have a long way to go to reach a just and equitable nation. Perhaps for other people in the room this morning, uh, and those online, thanks for joining us, uh, you, you might have sort of had painful memories of, of family members or, or close friends where there is now great tension in relationships or even broken relationships. And the idea of reconciliation seems like a beautiful goal, but so far off and so damaged. See, reconciliation is about restoring damaged and broken relationships. And it so often feels like trying to put a broken egg back together. Reconciliation requires truth-telling, repentance, forgiveness, and acceptance and embrace. As we look around us, we see so much need for reconciliation. The Scriptures give us a robust account of why things aren't the way they ought to be. Now, that's a more profound statement than, than seems. Uh, the, that is, the Gospel gives us a robust account of why things aren't the way they ought to be. And I say it's profound because there isn't much else in the world that offers a real account of the way things ought to be, just is. The Gospel speaks into the raw and real nature of our brokenness, and it describes that the root cause of that as our sin, our rebellion against God. It also holds out a real hope of how things ought to be, and it gives us a way to join those two things together in Jesus. What we have in the Scriptures is profound, and desperately needed by us and the whole world. Now, this is an epic passage as we finish our series on God's transforming power in weakness. And as, um, as Ian helpfully read out for us, uh, what we see majored on is reconciliation. And I want to walk through how Paul gets to that so that we might treasure this ministry of reconciliation, the fact that we have been reconciled with God and be able to enter the brokenness of this world with something real, and precious, acknowledging that, as best as we can see, reconciliation is so often a rare gem. But our journey today begins with a sense of acknowledgement of our standing before God in a not-reconciled world. The first step being truth-telling. Now, as I said, we're all very aware that our world is not joined up. It's broken, it's shattered like this glass in the picture. But Paul begins with a kind of confronting statement. Uh, either keep the passages open up in front of you, on your apps, or kind of in a Bible. Uh, some, some will appear on the screen. But Paul begins in verse 11 by saying, Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. The fear of the Lord. 
Maybe that phrase sort of strikes a little bit of fear in you. It's a strange phrase, perhaps, particularly linked with the, the idea of persuading people uh, because of it, as though it's sort of some kind of guilt-tripping thing. But, but let me kind of let first say that the phrase, the fear of the Lord, carries over the idea uh, in the previous uh, chapter or passage that we had read last week, and that was verse 10, that we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And this sounds even heavier, right? But if the first step of reconciliation is truth-telling, then that's exactly where the logic of reconciliation begins in this passage. The fear of the Lord captures the weight of responsibility and accountability that we have before our Lord and our Maker. Now, while heavy, this is an important and critical first step, that we are laid out before the Lord, that we are into this truth-telling now, we want a, get, a God who cares about injustice and brokenness. We had this little family moment uh, just last week where one of my children was quite upset and took issue with uh, some, well, so I took issue with some of the challenging behavior I was seeing, challenging, uh, and because he demonstrated sort of some, uh, you know, he, he was very upset with one of his siblings. And I said, I want you to want a dad who deeply cares about this kind of thing. He just, he just took issue with the fact that I took issue with him, and it was all going downhill. But the thing is, while we all long for someone, for God, to care deeply about the injustices and the brokenness of this world, we often take issue with the idea that that caring would cut across us. But the Bible's account of our need for reconciliation with God, with others, with creation, with ourselves, is sin. Our rebellion from God to pursue our own version of things, and it's fractured everything all the way down. But how does this fear of God, this idea of standing before God as judge and maker, prompt Paul to try and persuade people? Well, at a basic level and in the context of this letter, it, it, I think Paul is labouring his integrity. And we sort of get that in context when we continue reading on. He says, um, what we are is plain to God. He's reminding the Corinthians, again, we've seen this multiple times through the letter, he's reminding them that, that he is a person of integrity. There's no kind of hidden agenda, there's no deception. Any idea that he's persuading people comes from a, a place of integrity. And he's speaking out against those who take pride in outward appearance. See, Paul is persuading the Corinthians that he is actually joined up. He looks weak and he has suffered much. And he doesn't look like the kind of pin-up boy of integrity and reconciliation and yet he's saying, I carry within me treasure in jars of clay. I am joined up from the most inward part in God and He is working all the way out in me. But I, I think this idea of persuading people and of the fear of the Lord, as meaning just integrity, is too minimalistic. I think it's actually much more expansive than that. Even though that's a concern for Paul, and he's, he's laboured that all through the letter, I think the goal of his persuasion is as expansive as the concern for all people to hear the Gospel, and of the God who cares deeply about our estrangement, our brokenness, and our need for being joined up, being reconciled. Now, surely this encapsulates the concern for people to stand before Christ and, and what the fear of the Lord might look like 
if you don't have Christ as your mediator, as the one who has forgiven you. Friends, I just want to say, if, if we don't carry this concern about our neighbours standing before God, then we're missing something in our Gospel. But coming back to the idea of integrity, it's important that the way we go about holding out the Gospel, it, it matters. And I think our culture is very sensitive to deceptive ways to, to go about that. See, Paul is, is labouring, he's not sort of about some mere rhetoric, fancy speech or some deceptive method to kind of get people into church. No, no, he is a man of integrity. But as I said, I think we live in a culture that is also very sensitive to, to things that are not means of in, uh, ways of integrity. You know, I, I think of... Um, you know, in my old church, I, I led a food ministry, uh, handing out food to people uh, with a team of people. We were resourced by Oz Harvest, and uh, there were plenty of people, even though Erskineville is super gentrified, there are many people in that part of the city that are really in need. Uh, but some people took issue with that as kind of a way of sort of sneaking in the gospel, kind of getting people into church. But we kept going about this ministry because we really did care for people, and we wanted that to show in the long haul. It's also why church scandal, which has just hit the papers again yesterday, really matters. Friends, we are called to integrity as we hold out the hope of Jesus, as we seek to persuade people. There's no shortcuts in living out and holding out the gospel. It's got to come from the inside out. Treasure in jars of clay. So, our response to brokenness, offence, and our attempts to hold out the gospel, there's no shortcuts but the long road of reconciliation, of integrity. Oh, it's much easier to cut people off. It's much easier to puff yourself up to make yourself look good. But what we are invited into is a counter-narrative to the ways of the world. It's slower and messier, and we enter into the mess, don't we, as we pursue reconciliation. But we have a different goal than just kind of the good life. Our goal is to persuade people because we are concerned for people who will one day face God. Now, it sometimes looks crazy. Paul acknowledges this. He says, if we are out of our mind, as it would seem at some points. As I said, Paul's humility, his weakness, he doesn't look as kind of fancy as the sort of super apostles that he refers to later in the letter, who are much better orators and kind of have a much more impressive way of things. But they have left behind the gospel and they're not preaching the cross. But for Paul, he stands steadfast in the gospel, even in his weakness, as he is compelled into action towards the Corinthians and all those who aren't saved by, verse 14, the love of Christ compels us, he says. He is motivated by the love of Jesus. And we kind of heard that in the Vergesis video, didn't we? We talked about their motivations for doing what they're doing. It was for a love for people. It was the, the kind of the, the treasured pearl, the, the, the goodness of the gospel that he's desperately trying to hold out to people in need. But I'll tell you what, there are times that we will look like idiots when we hold out the gospel of Jesus. 
I remember when I left um, aeronautics, I, stu I studied aeronautical engineering and worked a few years in the field. And uh, in that few years, um, as is often the case in the engineering world, there's kind, of, there's kind of a culture that's sometimes not healthy. And it took me a long time to earn respect off a bunch of people who kind of looked down at kind of like, you know, the graduates. And uh, there was one particular guy, a, a Russian engineer, who was, um, who was very, he was amazing, very gifted man, uh, but just really cold and, uh, and always kind of just hating on me. Uh, but finally, I earned his respect uh, through a project that I worked on, and it was about two months later that I said to him, uh, I'm actually leaving engineering to go study at Bible college. He said, Jesus Christ. And I said, yes. Um, but I lost all respect in a moment that I'd spent years building up. Same with my mentor. Um, and, and sort of senior structural engineer in the consulting group I worked in. I, I'd, I'd really enjoyed that friendship. I'd been around his place many times, and we enjoyed a friendship, we went riding together, and then like that, it just blew up because he lost total respect for me that I would trash what he thought was a great career and pursue the foolishness of the gospel, even though I was motivated by love. Friends, we are being asked to stand on the solid ground of Jesus Christ even as it takes us into strange places in the eyes of the world. I can think of another example. In Newtown, uh, there was a lot of tension in, in, in the relationship between the community and the institutional church, um, and for all kinds of reasons, particularly around, um, around the plebiscite that happened a number of years ago. And uh, one of the people in our church was living next door to a very openly lesbian couple with a child. And, uh, and th there was a bit of animosity f from their side on that, and I, and I get it, they were really angry with the church about a bunch of stuff. But uh, there was one particular week where they were both sick and struggling to care for the child, and the person from church, the Christian, knocked on their door with a homemade meal, and they did not know what to do with that. Um, it was just a moment of kind of uh, just simple love, because we are motivated not sort of to oppose the hate or to overcome the hate of the world or the frustrations. No, we are motivated by the love of Christ to hold out the reconciliation of the gospel to whoever is in need. This counter-narrative of Christ is a different script to the rest of the world. We don't march to the beat of the drum of this world because we have a different goal. The love of Christ compels us. And then he says since we have reached this conclusion. He wants us to sort of go deeper into, into how this love of Christ motivates us. That's his language at the end of verse 14. For we have reached this conclusion. And he goes on to say, if Christ died for, for all, then all died. And that's kind of a strange sort of statement and needs a little bit of unpacking. For if Christ died for all, then all died. When Christ died on the cross, it had a universal claim on all of humanity. And in that universal claim was that we all stood under the judgment of God. The cross was God's wrath poured out on Jesus, who died for us. It was a statement to say, this is where you belong. And yet, it was also a statement of the universal love of God, that He loved the world so much that He would send His only Son. The love of God poured out on the cross. He died for all and all died. So that, 
Uh, He died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. When Christ died for us, we died with Him. And, and, And as we died with Him, we were reborn as much as Jesus was raised from the dead. As Paul's about to go on to say, we are a new creation. Friends, this is incredible news and there is nothing else like it in the world. Everything else will say, you keep working away and at some point you're going to get the tick from your boss, from your peers, from some kind of God. But the gospel of Jesus says that if you believe in Jesus, you have died with Him, your old self is gone and now you are raised to life to live for, not for yourself, but for God for the one who raised you. And now we spend the rest of our Christian lives actually discovering this new identity. It is incredible. And, and it, sort of, it, it drives us out because we're no longer living for ourselves, we're freed from ourselves, we're saved from sin, we're now living for God, we're living for others. And I'll tell you what, this makes us look at everything anew. This, this rewrites the script as far as the world is concerned. We have the gospel. We have a new way of life. Paul says, verse 16, from now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know Him in this way. This is incredible. Uh, It's like for all those that knew of Jesus, and for the record, there is not a kind of credible historian in the world who denies the life and death of Jesus Christ. Uh, But yet, as much as kind of the world will say, yep, there is a Jesus, and maybe He's a good teacher, maybe He's a good example of living the good life, we don't see Him as the world sees Him. We see everything anew because this Jesus who died for us, who laid His claim upon us, has now been raised from death and in that resurrection we cannot just see Him as another normal person because normal people don't rise from the dead. What we see is God's affirmation that this is the One, this is the Messiah, here is the Lord, the One who died for you and the One who saved you and it's an affirmation that this upside-down way of living, that is that the glory of God would appear in a cross, That is, our lives that look like they're weak, that are broken, are actually kind of ways to glory. Paul is living that out and for as much as people might hate on him or kind of be confused by this upside-down life, he is living for Jesus and he's hoping the whole world will see. John Calvin, in his Institutes of Religion, refers to this in a kind of spectacles, as though you put on these glasses and see the whole world anew. I find that a really helpful illustration and I find it particularly helpful in all kinds of everyday situations. So, for instance, when you find yourself trying to measure yourself, measure your success by looking at someone else, I mean, we all do it, it's just, it's such a human thing. Just take a moment, have a breath and put on, they're metaphorical, right, but put on the gospel goggles and and you see things anew. And and if that person is, is actually like, a person of integrity and their success is coming out of, you know, that integrity, actually just give thanks for them. But if you see someone who's cutting corners just to live for themselves, then that's a moment for you just to be reminded that you've been called to something different. 
that you've been called to live for Jesus and let the integrity that He has given you from the inside out shine out. Now, in light of the news yesterday about another indiscretion in the church, I think if if you find yourself gawking at a woman or being tempted in such an indiscretion, then put on your gospel goggles that, that you might look at that woman as a sister made in the image of God and not for your own gratification. Can you see how this is game changer? We are called to look at the world different because we've been shown how it really is. There is more to meet the more than meets the eye, to use that cliched kiddish phrase. This Jesus, who we build our life on, is Messiah and Lord. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. If anyone receives the forgiveness of Jesus with faith and repentance, they go through the most incredible moment, uh, like the metamorphosis of, of kind of a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly. That's kind of a, an, another metaphor to describe what's happened, as I've already mentioned, kind of that when we accept Christ, we don't accept Him at a distance. We don't sort of get an email from God saying, you're okay. No, no, we are brought into Christ so that we have died with Him and now have been raised to new life. Uh, this is cause for great celebration. There are so many times that we, we fail to believe this. You know, whether, whether you've stumbled and, and you're kind of struggling, or, or, or whether you've sort of reached that kind of, that plateau of just, you know, the mundane, you know, wheel of life is just turning over and over and you don't feel like you're going anywhere. Just be reminded that you have been given new life. You are a new creation. The old has gone in its way of living and you have been brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that happens in a moment when you accept Jesus. Again, not you kind of working your way up to the pearly gates, no, in a moment when you trust in Jesus, you have been reconciled to God and you have been given a new life. You are a new creation. Who's this available for? If anyone is in Christ, anyone trusts in Jesus, this new life is for them. Because God so loved the whole world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believes, whoever believes, might have this new life. So, what have we said so far? We've acknowledged that our world so needs to be joined up, to be reconciled in and of itself, but mostly back to God. And there's that moment of truth-telling where God stands on the judgment throne and actually lays it all out. And we acknowledge, especially as Christians, that God can see it all. But we don't approach Him in terror. No, no, we approach Him as someone who is open before the Lord, with lives of integrity. Because we have been forgiven. We have new life. We're invited into a counter-narrative. That is, that as we look to Jesus, we acknowledge that He died for us. And we live for Him, not for the ways of this world. And because of that, we see everything anew. And our purpose for life radically changes because we are a new creation, discovering our new identity day by day as we know Jesus more and more. And because of all of that, we acknowledge that all of this is from God. 
That's what Paul says. All of this is from, everything is from God, who has reconciled us to Himself through Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's not counting our sins against us anymore. In the moment of truth-telling, we, it is right for Him to say, you are sinful, you are estranged, you don't belong with me, you've turned away from me. And yet He didn't count that against us because Christ died for us. And as we accept that forgiveness in what Christ has done for us, the Father embraces us. This is a, a, a sculpture by Charlie McKenzie, uh, I, think, I think it is, it, it, from, from Luke 15. It's the prodigal son. It's the moment where the, where the Father embraces the son. The same son who said kind of as a young child, Father, I know you're wealthy, but I wish you were dead so that I could get your inheritance right now and do what I want with it. It's the big middle finger to God. And in this parable, the, the kind of the crowd that Jesus is telling it to would have expected that the Father kind of give that child a kind of appropriate, you know, disciplinary action. But instead, the Father embraces that child. Why? Because that's what God does to us in Jesus. We are reconciled. The broken relationship has been restored, not by our doing but because of Jesus, we have been welcomed into the loving arms of the very Father that we offended, turned away from, all because of His love for us in Jesus. And now we have been reconciled, we are brought into this, this ministry of reconciliation. Let's let that sink in for a moment. Let, let, us, let us own the fact that we have been reconciled. Let us never get over that. But it's not just for us, like, oh, geez, God. <laughs> no, no, we are brought into a whole new way of life. And now God is working in us as though He were making His appeal through us. We are the counter-narrative. We are living gospel narratives, holding out the hope of Jesus. And I'm really looking forward to this next series. We are as Paul will say, ambassadors. Now, that's a very rich metaphor. It's the idea that, that we would be sort of sent back, as it were, having been saved and brought into the Kingdom of the Son, sent back into the world, to, to no longer defined by it, but, but to represent Jesus and His Kingdom. I've not been an ambassador before, but I can't help but think of uh, um, sort of, I'm, I'm not a huge sport guy either, but I, I, did, I did get involved in a club once, uh, a cycling club, because I'm that kind of guy. And uh, so I, I bought the kind of the Deli Chill Cycling Club jersey, and I wore it with pride. And uh, in fact, there's a little, I'll just, there we go, I'm just got this, very quick, very quick, because that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was so proud of it, that, that that's me on a church conference in Taipei, and, um, and I took the jersey with me, and I hired a bike, and I climbed up one mountain, and I met a whole bunch of people, because when you wear a jersey, and you're kind of in a club, you sort of, you know, you're in the inner circle, and you get to meet people, and it's exciting. Uh, that's what, for me, it meant to represent kind of my Dulwich Hill Cycling Club. But it also came with a, with a sense of burden. That was, there was a moment when I realized that I couldn't ride up the wrong side of the road to beat my time, because I was wearing a jersey. I was representing Dulwich Hill. And if someone was to kind of see some of the antics that I was getting up to to beat the clock, there'd be a phone call, Dolly Chill, just saw a guy wearing your jersey, not so good. 
But the thing is, is because we're ambassadors, we're, we're, not, we're not driven by fear. We're not driven by guilt. We are driven by love. And it reminds me that when Jesus speaks to His disciples, He said, you are no longer servants, but friends, because I'm telling you the Father's will. In writing with Deli Chill, they actually taught me how to ride properly in a bunch. I was a total rogue before that. In the same way that as we wear the jersey of Christ, we, we are showing a better way to live for Him and to hold that out. And now God is making His appeal through us. Why would He trust us with such a privilege? Because He's invested Himself in us, His Holy Spirit. Friends, given how rare a gem reconciliation is in this world, let us own that we have been reconciled to God and now hold that out to others. Now, I acknowledge that I'm not, I'm not calling you to sort of just rashly throw forgiveness around in the, in the midst of broken and complex relationships, but surely our goal must remain to seek reconciliation in all the broken mess we find ourselves in, because we've been resourced and kind of brought into an understanding of how this world is not how it's meant to be. We've been resourced with the Holy Spirit. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. This has been a great series, thinking about how God works in us, transforms us in our weakness. And uh, as, I, as I finish up this, uh, this passage and this series, I, I want to share one more story. Uh, I got a phone call this week from an old friend uh, who had received some terrible news that she had a life-threatening illness. And uh, as she wrestled with the grief of that and, and the disorientation of that, I encouraged her to just keep looking to Jesus. And she appreciated that. And she calls me up this week to say, Mike, God gave me an amazing opportunity this week. That, that as I shared my life in all its weakness with my neighbours, they came round and opened up their lives with me. And I found that God was at work in their lives in ways that I did not understand. She now has an incredible opportunity to, to hold out the love of Jesus in a way she never could have done before. Now, if I said to her, I'll just use your illness for God, that, that, that wouldn't have been right. And yet He does use our weakness to transform us and to even allow us to be ambassadors in radically new ways. Friends, we have the privilege of having God work in us. He has reconciled us and brought us into the ministry of reconciliation. In humility, in repentance, in weakness, He is transforming us. Let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Let me pray. Father, Thank you for embracing us as your children, not by our merits, but in your dear Son, who died for us and rose again. Father, remind us daily of your mercies and of what you've called us into, because we are so weak, we stumble so quickly, and we forget the glories you have shown us. So remind us this morning, set our hearts on fire, that we might approach this week 
with an entirely different view, the view of Christ. Father, help us in this way. In Jesus' name, amen.